Okay, um, so let's see. We need to start because actually it's kind of a little bit of emergency that uh, Karen and Car Carol are, you belong to a dance group and their practice is in one hour. Um, no, they do. You're something like that. Yes, I, I know. Get your outfits on. Go get that gold lame on. <laughs> Um, so, why don't we start in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Now, they were on their way to, Jesus, to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking along with them. And as the disciples were following, they were filled with terror and dread. Taking them aside, Jesus once more began to describe to describe all that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem when they arrived. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. I, sorry, I think that's kind of funny because Jesus takes them, they're terrified, so Jesus says, oh, come on, come on, let me tell you what's going to happen. And after it gets worse, <laughs> I'm going to be tortured, crucified. <laughs> You're not calming me down. <laughs> But the most important part is that, uh, that was actually Mark, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be crucified, even when Judas comes. Before Judas shows up, he says, uh, get ready, he, my betrayer approaches. He knew everything. Uh, they were terrified, but um, the odd part is he keeps telling them what's going to happen, and they're just unprepared. So... It sounds strange, I didn't have a lot of time, but just, I kind of thought since I do have a little bit of free time in Lent, I thought we could have two classes just on Holy Week to prepare us. So I have to admit, it's not going to be a really great class because um, I didn't have that much time to prepare. But there's these great symbols of um, Holy Week, so I thought we could just spend an hour going over the symbols. And we're going to start with Palm Sunday. Um, in Palm Sunday, you have Jesus riding on a fold, a colt, a donkey, um, and the donkey symbolizes something, that David's, King David, all his sons are horrible people. Uh, they're all fighting for the throne, and David says that the true son of God is going to come riding on a donkey. And Solomon, when he is uh, named king, he does come riding on a donkey, a donkey symbolizes humility, by the way. And so, in the Bible, most of you guys probably know this, who rides on a donkey? But the true son of David will ride on a donkey, and the bread that's offered in the temple is always riding on a is carried on a donkey. A donkey symbolizes humility. So, when Solomon takes the throne, yes, Solomon is the son of David, technically, and he rides on a donkey, but... It's really a story of failed um, humility. King Solomon actually comes incredibly arrogant and corrupt. But really the prophecy, it's the true son of David will come riding on a donkey. So Jesus, when he comes, he's riding on a donkey. He's proclaiming to be the true son of David and the prince of peace who's very humble. But, you know, the joke is, and you know this, what kind of king are you waiting for? Because like a lot of Jews, they did want Christ to come, the king to come, so that they could kick the Romans in the teeth. Um, a lot of Americans, it's, this is the gospel of prosperity, they do want Jesus because Jesus is going to bless their bank accounts. Um, he hasn't done anything with mine. but um, <laughs> So in Lent, if you're waiting for Christ... On Palm Sunday, what kind of Christ are you waiting for? And he comes in the east gate. Now, there's 11 gates into Jerusalem. Jesus enters in the east gate. So the backstory of why Jesus approaches from the east is because when the temple was destroyed, the prophet sees the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, this cloud of glory, and that's the thing that makes the temple holy. The Shekinah, the Holy Spirit, rises and goes east. So when they were freed, they built the temple. But the temple was missing two things. One, the Ark of the Covenant, and the second thing was the Shekinah, 
God coming back to dwell in the temple. Does that make sense? So they're waiting for God to return coming from the east. And the east gate is called the Golden Gate. There's actually two gates in the east on the Temple Mount. The southern gate is called the Mercy Gate, sometimes called the Gate to Eternal Life. The other one is called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate. And they were the oldest gates in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel prophesies that one day the gates will be shut. We'll welcome God coming from the east, but one day the gates will be shut. And it's just a warning that your time to get into the heavenly temple, one day it will end. Um, so look east is looking for God to return, uh, to come and bless the temple. Um, so what that really means, Ezekiel's warning is, be ready to not only welcome God, but know your time is limited. And you know, when he comes in, they rip off branches and palm branches and wave the palm branches. Um, I love that symbol as well. So the palm branch is, symbolizes two things. One, it symbolizes a victory. Um, this sounds kind of strange, but after a war they'd wave palm branches, so it symbolizes victory. And they're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna just means savior or liberator, that he's the one who's going to truly set us free. Now they're thinking from the Romans. Christ is thinking from death itself. So one is a palm branch is a symbol of victory. The other one is that it's used for the dedication of the temple. When the temple was first built, they had this seven days celebration where they're waving palm branches, welcoming God into the temple. So the very fact that they're waving palm branches, that's also a way of saying, God has come back to the temple. Does that make sense? So I love the fact, this is just me, on Palm Sunday, we do do the palms, this sign of victory. It's our proclaiming, we're, we're going to follow Christ. But you know what happened at the end of Palm Sunday, right? Like, wow, well, sorry, at the end of Passion. They all abandoned him. <laughs> so I love how we take the palms and put them behind our crosses, that we who make this great proclamation will follow Christ. It's following him to the cross. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And then the problem is that um, the Pharisees tell Jesus to keep his disciples quiet. You know, because this is just going to upset the Romans. And Jesus replies that even if they're uh, quiet, the stones would cry out. And oddly enough, that does happen. The disciples are kept quiet out of fear at the crucifixion. But at the crucifixion, it's the stones that do cry out in the form of an earthquake. Does that make sense? So uh, another proof, uh, oddly, it's going to unfold like he wants. But the overview, like just on Palm Sunday, I like thinking, well, we're looking for a victory, but a different type of victory and a different type of king. Um, so that's an overview on Palm Sunday. And um, on Palm Sunday, you have this idea that uh, religion and uh, the city, it's going to be overthrown. So I, I love the Palm Sunday one. So just want to go through the first half of uh, Holy Week. So any, any objections on Palm Sunday or... Any, I was kidding. I was joking. I object to Palm Sunday. Um, but that's start. Okay, any questions? Or I'll move to Monday. Okay, Monday. Um, so Jesus stays in Bethany. In Bethany, he stays at the home of Mary uh, and Martha and Lazarus. Now, there's this ancient church tradition that Lazarus, and I don't know why, I'm just telling you this because I like it, Lazarus would have been what we called a special needs child. Um, and I do, I don't know why, I just, I like that. But he stays at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, which is in Bethany. It's about two-mile journey from uh, Jerusalem. And so that's Monday, and he gets up and he goes to Jerusalem. But when he sees Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem, weeps over its impending destruction, um, because, and I like this line, that they missed the time of their visitation. Um, 
which I, I know just the, like the mystery of the visitation, you always think of Elizabeth and Mary, but now is the time of our visitation, that Christ is here among us, and will we recognize him? So Holy Week, oddly enough, also starts with God crying that we were unwilling to change. I don't know why, that just absolutely amazes me. And uh, there's this chapel on the base uh, of... Um, in Jerusalem, where supposedly Christ stopped and cried, and the chapel is in the shape of a teardrop, which I just think is kind of amazing. Um, and anyhow, he's crying, but um, I don't know why it just touches me that, wow, Holy Week starts with God crying that we're unwilling to change. The point being is that shouldn't, if we are about to enter Holy Week, Shouldn't our desire of desires be that we truly do change? Not just another religious celebration, waving the palm branches, but didn't change at all. I mean, God is crying that we will change. Isn't that kind of beautiful? And remember, the city, he's crying because the city is going to be destroyed. He does say, this, you know, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it is. You know, the, uh, after he's um, crucified, um, it's like 40 years later, um, the Jews revolt against Rome, and they win. They kick the Romans out. But you know, no offense, you know those Italians. Um, just kidding, Gina. They just come back with a greater force, and they wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth. So in 70 AD, yeah, Christ is right. Jerusalem will get destroyed. And the Romans wanted to make sure that the Jews never rebelled, so they destroyed the temple and they kill all the priests because that religion is coming to an end. So what we call Judaism today is actually rabbinical Judaism. Classical Judaism deals with sacrifice and priests and temple. Um, there hasn't been any of that in 2,000 years. So he starts with this weeping. Now, to me, I think we should take that serious. Um, if Holy Week comes and goes and we're not anymore have this desire for change, we missed our time of visitation. And I know I'm kind of strange, but think of all the things that happen in our life, good and bad, especially the bad, I think, the suffering. Isn't it just this urge for us to be aware of the divine among us and to truly change? I love that the Monday of Holy Week starts with tears. And then Jesus sees this fig tree. And it sounds strange, but Jesus sees this fig tree and he curses the fig tree. Um, that should strike you as a little strange, right? Jesus hates plants. That's, no. Um, the story, the fig tree symbolizes religion. Fake news. <laughs> Anyhow, that is fake news. Jesus hates, no, I'm sorry. It, the fig tree symbolizes religion. And think about this. He's about to go into the heart of religion. And he sees this fig tree, and the fig tree is producing no fruit. Now, I mentioned this before on Sunday. There's this Old Testament story from the prophets that God gets up every morning and looks at humanity to see whether we're producing the fruits of love and justice and mercy. But God is always upset because and <clears throat> there are words in Hebrew that sound very similar, so it's a play on words. Instead of finding love, he finds violence. Instead of finding mercy, he fly, finds bloodshed. And religion is supposed to be producing all this. So when Jesus goes over to the fig tree and sees that there's no figs on it, he curses it. And the, the real analogy is that God is always looking for the fruits of worship. And at one point, God will curse us if all we have is a lot of show and leaves, a lot of great leaves, but no fruits of worship, no, no fruits of love and justice. Does that make sense? Um, so he curses religion that's all talk and pomp and show. What God most cares about is the fruits. And he says it wasn't the season for the fruits, meaning... Um, Nothing was even growing. And like, it dovetails with the parable of the um, tree dresser, the, the gardener, 
who for three years has been working on this tree and showing no fruit, uh, Lent is a time that we want to make sure, this is last Sunday's, humble, last Sunday's gospel, you want to make sure that you're cutting away all those things that are dead in us so that the fruit will truly bloom. Now, at Easter time is when we pray that the fruit really does bloom. Lent is the time that we're pruning away the dead parts of us that is preventing the blooming. Does that make sense? So we'll work on love and mercy during the Easter season, but especially during um, um, Lent of Holy Week, we're praying that those dead things um, are cut off. Um, so I know this sounds kind of strange. I get a little harsh. I mentioned before, had to work with this priest once who the priest would always say things like, you know, he was very 70s You know, in Lent, don't, don't beat yourself up. Don't worry about fasting. Just be good to yourself. God will be happy if you're good to yourself. And to be like just scratching wood. Like, no! <laughs> I'm not saying don't be good to yourself. That's not what Lent is about, being good or not good. Lent is about a transformation. And yet, if you dumb it down to, God just wants you to be good to yourself. What? No, God wants us to be reborn. Does that make sense? Not just, and yeah, sometimes you have to cut out the, the dead parts of us. I just think it's a kind of spiritual narcissism uh, to say, well, don't be too harsh for yourself. I think the question is not about what to do. I think the question is about change but willing to have those parts beaten, cut out, cut off. And the warning of the prophet is that one day God will judge us um, whether we're producing fruit. The gates will be shut. So, you know, that's not be good to yourself. If religion symbolizes the fig tree, then um, we should be asking, are, is our religion, is our parish truly producing the fruits of worship? Or is it a big show to impress other people? So I love the ancient tradition of the scrutinies. We have three scrutinies during Lent. You know, the first one is praying that we know our personal sins. Um, but this is the time to let Jesus judge us. Let us know what needs to be cut away. Does that make sense? So, yeah, the parable of the fig tree. Love that. And then when Jesus gets to the temple, he overturns the tables. Um, he overturns a money cha changer's table. And now, sometimes you'll hear that, well, it's because they weren't giving good rates on the... <laughs> I think that misses the point. Um, but, so what would happen is that, let's say they're traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. You can't take your animals with you. You know what I mean? That's so... Uh, and plus, you can't take the animals because... You know, it's going to be a several-day journey. Number two, if anything, if the animal gets damaged, it's no longer worthy of sacrifice. Does that make sense? So you'd go to Jerusalem and buy your lamb. And the lambs, um, there's this whole process. I mentioned they're born in Bethlehem. They're swaddled immediately. They're protected, so there's no damage. They're absolutely pure. So you go and you'd buy these lambs. Um, and uh, you'd buy, well, all of it. But um, uh, to make commerce, what they did is the temple is not just for Jews. I know you think it is. It's not. It's really the temple was meant for everyone. Now, there were these walls that would cut off. So, like, everybody could come into the temple area, and that would be the court of the Gentiles. And then there's a wall that only Jews are allowed past this wall. And then you get to another wall. And it says only males are allowed. Um, and then you get to another wall, and then only priests are allowed. So there's wall upon walls. Does that make sense? Um, and that's important because um, there's this prophecy of one of the patriarchs that he sees this branch, this vine, that will come. So he gets this vision of the future. And this vine will spread all over Israel and knock down walls of enmity that divide us. Well, that branch is Christ. One of the names of Christ is the branch. Um, and so St. Paul is going to say, oh, he has knocked down the walls between Jew and Gentile, man and woman. We are one. But where they put up the, the place to make money 
is in the court of the Gentiles. The problem with that is that that belongs to us and you're using it to make money. Um, and the temple priests are making huge, it's not just, the temple's not just for worship. It's also worked as a bank. And there is economic uh, inequality going on. They're having loans and taking the farms of poor people. And so when Jesus has that line where he points at the priest and says, you have made my temple a den of thieves, um, that line is from Jeremiah, and it's very scary because Jeremiah, uh, it's his prophecy, and it prophesies the end of the temple priesthood, that when the Messiah comes, ev everything will stop, and the priests, uh, the Christ will allow Gentile priests to come and serve. Uh, so when he says um, a den of thieves, they would have known exactly what prophecy he's talking about. Jeremiah is talking about corruption at his time, where Jeremiah in this passage is talking about, well, the Sabbath comes, you guys love to make a big show of religion, but on Monday you're willing to cheat other people. And you've turned religion into a den of thieves where you're more concerned about money and power. And so um, the prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, oh, he's going to change all that. He's going to take power away from the priests. So when Jesus says that in the gospel, I think it's in Matthew, uh, they have different time periods. Uh, different gospel has different times where they decide, oh, we're going to kill him. But in Matthew, it's when he says those lines, that's when the priests decide, oh, you're going to die for that. You're not taking away our power. Does that make any sense? Um, so the prophecy is that the Christ will purify religion. And in that Jeremiah quote, God reminds, Jeremiah reminds, listen, God silo, God wiped out silo because um, in the north that was a center of worship and religion had become corrupt, so God wipes it away. And he says the same thing will happen to Jerusalem. The same thing will happen to us as well. Corrupt religion will always be wiped away. And so when Jesus overturns the money tables, it's not that like he turned over all of them, but by creating the commotion, he stopped the sacrifices. And remember the prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, all sacrifices will end except one sacrifice, the Toda sacrifice. Um, the thing, which Toda in Hebrew is Thanksgiving, which is also, I don't know if you know this, the word for the Eucharist. Um, so really, not all sacrifices is in. The only sacrifice that's been celebrated for the last 2,000 years is the Toda, the Thanksgiving, of Christ's Passover. So the prophecy was fulfilled. And temple worship will soon come to a complete end. But the temple will come to an end. Temple worship will come to an end. But Christ will be the temple. And Christ will be the sacrifice that um, survives. And... The prophecy is true. There will be a place for Gentiles. Um, uh, we are kicked out because of the money changers, but it's Christ who's going to let the Gentiles back into the true temple. Um, so when Christ says, you've made uh, my house a den of thieves, um, yeah, Christ does come and start a new priesthood. Um, so I do love this idea that you have this... Uh, kind of judge of religion during Holy Week, that corrupt religion, the Christ will overturn. So on Monday, the overview, you have the cursing the fig trees, the Pharisees confronting Christ. And even Christ says the stone rejected by the builder. One little thing about that, the stone, there's this prophecy that you have this big kingdom and this little tiny stone will come and knock it all down. Uh, and become a big stone, that's the church. That's Christ in the church. That, wow, fake religion, God wants to purify it all. Does that make sense? So, like, on the Monday of um, uh, Holy Week, I do like the fact that we are hoping that, yes, everything that's fake and phony and religion that's about power and show all of that will come to an end in us. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about the Episcopalians. Um, 
I'm talking about. I know that that part was a joke, but like, but I don't like. I uh, what do you? There's a word for that triumphalism, that it's everybody else that needs to change, not us Catholics. Um, we still have for 2,000 years also a struggle with those who misuse religion for power and show and money. Um, so Monday of Holy Week, even here at St. Pius, I hope we're purified, our religion is purified to be true worship. Does that make sense? Questions, objections? Yes. I don't remember that. The next day, they see the fig tree is dead. So I don't think it was immediate. I think it was a 24-hour event. Because, <laughs> no, they don't see it immediately. They only notice it the next day after the confrontation. Okay, uh, the other thing, I mentioned these times, but to be honest, the problem is time works a little bit different in the Bible. Because um, like the Gospel of John measures time by our standards, uh, a Roman way, where the morning is the beginning of a day. But in Judaism, what's the beginning of a new day? Evening. Yeah, so it's, it's sunset. So um, if somebody says, and, now, and I'm going to do this, I'll mix up the days, and you think, well, technically that was Tuesday. Oh, well, no, no, on Jewish time, it's Wednesday. <laughs> um, so be a little loose, because I'm going to go back and forth between Rome and, and Jewish time. But Monday night, he walks back to Bethany. So on Tuesday, the next morning, he's confronted by the priests. Um, so on Tuesday, the apostles see, oh, wow, that's amazing, the the fig tree has withered and died. Then he goes to the temple court and the priests immediately confront him and ask him, by what authority have you done this? Now, they're not upset as if it was an act of vandalism. They're upset because it's this prophetic sign that it's the end of the temple and the priesthood and the coming of the new temple and the coming of the new priests. So they want Jesus to answer. But Jesus doesn't answer their questioning because he doesn't want to hear it. Um, and he, has a, he says, well, what about uh, John the Baptist? Well, they don't want to answer that question because um, it puts them, if John the Baptist was from God, why didn't you listen to him? Uh, and they don't want to answer that. They just want to accuse Jesus. Uh, and Jesus gives them four proofs for why he did it. His works, scripture, John the Baptist, and God the Father is speaking in their hearts. They know the truth. Um, and then he tells them these parables. And they're great parables. But like one parable is the parable of the prodigal son, which we call the parable of the prodigal son. But when you hear that parable, think about it in context to um, what's going on in Holy Week. So this is really about the cross. And they've just confronted him. And he tells them the parable, because a lot of times people just reduce the prodigal son story to, um, well, ask for forgiveness. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So you know the story, right? The prodigal son um, says to his father, you're dead to me, I want your money. Um, and the odd part, a second son has no right to an inheritance. It all goes to the first son. But the father gives him the money. And you know, he goes off and spends on wine, women, and farming. Um, uh, okay, it's not farming. Uh, it doesn't even say women. But John the 23rd, and that's an inside joke. John the, Pope John the 23rd said that there's three ways to ruin a man. Wine, women, and farming. He says, my dad chose the most boring. <laughs> so anyhow, he goes off on dissolute living is actually what it says whatever that is. So, um, but he loses everything and loses it all. And of course he says, oh, you know, the servants are treated better than me. Comes back and even though he, like he's rehearsed in his head what he wanted to uh, say he's sorry for, but before he can get it out, his father runs out to him and throws himself around his neck, puts a robe on and a ring on his finger, 
he is welcome back. Um, all he had to do is make the approach, and God is willing to forgive everything. But then the oldest son, that just cracks me up, the oldest son, the firstborn son, he's upset that you welcome that piece of trash back. Um, and so with the oldest son, um, uh, the oldest son gives this excuse of, um, you know, and I just think it's a funny line. He says, when that son of yours, not my brother, when that son of yours comes back after spending his money on loose women, nowhere before that does it mention anything about prostitutes. Do you, you know, So, like, in my mind, obviously he's over-exaggerated his brother's sins. Does that make sense? And, like, well, who's really thinking of prostitutes? It wasn't... Um, and... So the list of sins doesn't, is not really what the younger brother may or may not have committed, but he has them convicted. And, says, and you didn't even give me so much as a goat. For the, um, I love that line because I always kind of think, oh, kids today, if they would just be happy with a goat. Um, <laughs> but notice the father does the exact same thing that he did with the younger son. It's a father who when the older son refuses to come into the house, runs out to him. Um, it's a father who begs him to come into the house. And what you might not know is in Judaism, if a child refuses to come into its parents' house, then actually that's a way of telling your parent you're dead to them. That's exactly what the first son did. Does that make sense? Um, so you have this twist that the oldest son He's obeyed all the rules and regulations, but he's basically told his father, you're dead to me. Um, and the father does the exact same thing, run out. But the parable ends with this question mark. Will the older son come into the house or not? So the joke is, wow, somebody could have been incredibly moral their entire life um, and not get into the father's house, heaven, because they can't forgive and welcome other people. Uh, and how that relates is this. Uh, the priests want to accuse Jesus of what he did, but they're the ones who are guilty. They're the ones who took away our access to the temple. And if you look at the temple, the temple was, Judaism was supposed to convert the world. It was supposed to convert us Gentiles, but they didn't do that. They just wanted to think it was about them. So then Jesus mentions a second parable, parable of vineyard where the vineyard, um, and I like this, that um, it's this image that all the world is God's vineyard. God owns it all. And God leases the vineyard out to us. God lets us rent a few years of life. I know that sounds kind of strange, but yeah. God lets us lease a few years of life, but we have to pay the produce. And the produce is love for this great gift of Life, we pay the, the rent. The rent is love, except the prophets keep coming, saying, you're not paying your rent. And one day, he sends his son to collect it. And they think, oh, if we kill him, we'll be able to own everything. Um, and so they kill him. Now, um, the priests at this point, they, it says, they knew what his me message was, because Jesus knows they want to have him killed. Um, and the point, again, is Lent is a time for us to truly examine, are we choosing to produce the fruits of love or not? You may be like the oldest son and say, no, I've obeyed every canonical rule there is. But you haven't really produced any love. And the scary part is, haven't you met people like that? And stop looking at me. Um, who, they're very concerned about all these religious rules that they keep with such vigor, which is a good thing, but they produce no, no fruit. When they may be shocked that um, they haven't been paying their rent, that they're the oldest child. Or the parable of the wedding feast, where he tells another parable, same thing, of those wedding banquet, where the invitation goes out to everybody. Um, but when the master comes into the wedding feast, he sees this guy who's not wearing his wedding garment and says, friend, how did you get in here? And has them 
bound uh, and thrown out. And that seems so strange to us. But in baptism, we're invited into the kingdom. In baptism, you're given your wedding garment. If you show up to a Jewish wedding at the time, when you came in, they would give you your wedding garment. You just have to put it on. Does that make sense? So when you're baptized, you also get a, a wedding garment. And it's your parents and godparents are going to show you how to put on the robes of love. But it's not good enough just to receive the invitation. You actually have to put on the dress. Does that make sense? So, um, like, yeah, they, the priests are really good about talking about their invitation, but they never actually put love and faith into action. So, and why I mention the wedding dress, and I'll get into this next time, but I'm just giving you a taster. The whole crucif- the Holy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter, you know it's a wedding. It's a wedding. I'll get in. There's two themes that are going on. It's a priest ordination and it's a wedding ceremony. So Holy Week is a wedding ceremony. So we're given the the wedding dress, we just never really bothered to put it on. Um, but there's more parables about this fruit of love. Uh, and the idea is that during Lent, we're supposed to be emptying ourselves, cutting out the dead areas so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come Easter time, we're going to be concentrating on being filled. Lent is a time where we're emptied. And Christ begins with these parables that our problem is that we desire too little. We have these desires for petty little things that we need to die to in order to really produce great love. Or Matthew, um, he gives at the Mount of Olives, he also tells a bunch of stories. Um, and, and Matthew, it's here where the disciples say, tell us, when will these things happen? When will the sign of your coming uh, and the end of ages? And Jesus gives three parables. And the parable says, you want to know when the end times are? They're right now. <laughs> now is the time you want to get ready. So no offense, the end times have been for the last 2,000 years if you read scripture. St. Paul will say, we're in the end times. So no offense, there's different denominations that will suddenly get on TV and say, we are sure it's 2023, March 1st. Um, well, the end times have been a long time. And the end times are right now, that now is the time to get ready. So in Matthew, he tells the story of the ten virgins. Um, the foolish ones were not ready for the bridegroom. And remember, the image of Christ is Christ is the bridegroom. God is going to send the Christ. Christ is going to marry us. So that's what we're waiting for. The marriage actually happens on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. Um, some of the virgins are ready for the wedding and some are not. Or the talents. God gives talents to everybody. Some people invested them. Um, the story of the goats and the sheep, dividing them. There's this time of judgment. So in Matthew, it's now that you kind of think, well, now's the time to be judged. And then he follows it with seven woes. Seven woes for religious people. List of seven woes and warnings that the Father is speaking to you now. Now's the time to make sure that your life is changed. I know all those parables seem harsh, um, but um, I don't know, I like it because it kind of wakes you up. Does that make it like, um, I shouldn't tell you this, this kid is having heart problems. I th- think he's going to be okay, but he's in his 20s, and you know, no offense, for 20 years, that's freaking you out when the doctors say you might not survive. So, uh, for the 20-year-old, he was like, I'll change my life, I'll change everything. <laughs> and I kind of thought, you know, sometimes diseases are not bad things. You know, it kind of wakes you up that at 20, he was like, I want to live a better life. Does that make any sense? All these parables are kind of this wake-up call that, wow, our clock is ticking. Now's the time to really have a great life. So at the end of, um, well, I'm going to say this, at the end of this, uh, he then mentions that, um, he mentions again, 
that Jesus finished saying these things, these parables, and said to his disciples, as you know, Passover is in two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over and crucified. Then the chief priests, the elders of the people, will be assembled in the palace with the high king, and whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way to kill him. Well, that didn't go any better. I'm still scared. <laughs> but, um, like, it should just wake you up. Does that make sense? Um, so, that's Tuesday. Any problems with Tuesday? <laughs> Get your life together, people. <laughs> yes. That is a really good question. Dang it. Because uh, I can't answer it. Uh, no, but I can give you my... I think it actually starts, if I have to say, uh, with your desire to do the will of God. Not by measuring its effects. Um, so, like, I think it's always stupid to tell God what your plans are. <laughs> Works the other way. He's the boss. Um, all you really know is your great desires. Uh, and either your desires are to do the will of God or not to do the will of God. That's all we really know. And so I told the story. I love the story of St. Peter Chanel, who, um, do you guys mind if I retell the story of that? I'm sure I told him. So Peter Chanel uh, was this French priest who, um, obviously holy, but what he wanted most in life is to be a missionary. He's sure he was called to be a missionary. So finally, he gets to go on this mission to the island of Fatuna, which is in Polynesia. And he, they drop him off on this island, and he starts you know, to preach the gospel and try and make converts. He only made a handful, like three converts or some pathetic amount after a year, almost a year. And then uh, something happened, some catastrophe happened, and the people then blamed Father Peter Chanel and so they killed him. Um, I know, kind of shocking. So the day he died, think about this, he would have not made his big thing he thought was to be a missionary. He knew that's what God was calling him. But the day he died, really? You only made a handful of converts? You didn't really make much difference, did you? Except, um, so another ship comes by and they drop off priests and they ask what happened to Father Peter Chanel. Now this is the amazing part. In the remaining year, um, they all baptized each other. So a, a year later, they're all Catholic, at least baptized. And the priests say, well, what happened to Peter Chanel? And he says, oh, we killed him. And, <laughs> um, and just how he bore the death, his own death, is what converted them. Um, so, like, I know this sounds kind of strange. I don't think until we get to heaven will we really know whether if our great desire was to do the will of God and produce fruit, that's all we really need. But if you measure, like, was it successful or not successful, you won't know that till you get to heaven. Do, you know, does that make any sense? Um, so, I just think, like, Lent is a time to purify our desires not anything measurable. Because you won't really know. And other, like The temple looks impressive. It has all this gold and jewels, and you could see it for miles. The top of the temple was gold so that it reflected, so everybody knew where it was. But a lot of gold and white, but it didn't last. Does that make sense? So I just think all these parables, um, the sun's not perfect but his desire is for home. Um, so, does that answer your question? I just think... No. No, 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 that's... I, I just think Lent is a time to purify our hearts and desires, but I don't think it can ever be measurable in the sorts of plan or directives. Does that make any sense? You just... 
Okay, Wednesday, which is really, okay, this gets confusing. There's two major events on Wednesday, um, and that is Judas' betrayal of Jesus and also the anointing of Jesus um, in Bethany. Now, the problem is, just to let you know, this actually happens Tuesday evening, but in Jewish time, that's Wednesday. Does that make sense? So, um, start with Jewish, Judas' betrayal. So the Sanhedrin were jealous of the incredible treatment that Jesus received on Palm Sunday. So um, uh, they were upset, and the priests were threatened by Christ. So the priest, I just think, this kind of are more concerned that the people will be upset. That's what they're most concerned with, not the fact that they want to murder <laughs> somebody. Uh, they, I, the irony, they love to proclaim themselves as religious, but they want it all to be, what they're really concerned about is the show of religion, but we're going to make sure we kill this guy. Um, and so, of course, they make an offer to Judas. And Judas, um, he's in charge of the money bag. So, um, does say that. So, beware of accountants is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, <laughs> So at the Last Supper, um, when Judas gets up and leaves, the apostles think, well, it's because he hasn't given something to the poor. And Jews, always before Passover, you take care of the poor. And he must have forget, forgotten to give money to the poor because he holds the purse. Catholics do the same thing. We give almsgiving before Easter during Lent. A lot of ours is going to the Ukrainians. Um, but I just mentioned that because the thing about the money, because Jesus says about the Pharisees is that they love to make show, but what they really love is not God. What they love is money. I just think that's kind of funny. That, um, so Judas is a type of Pharisee. Does he really love God, or does he love the show and the money? So Judas agrees to betray Jesus, to literally, and this is, the Greek does not use the word betray. The Greek keeps using the word hand over. Now that's a really important. So uh, he's willing to hand over Jesus if they hand over 30 silver pieces. And so really, like in the Eucharistic prayer or um, the Gospels, is the night he was handed over, the night Jesus was handed over. St. Paul loves this phrase. And you know why he loves the phrase, hand over, because... It's used in the Eucharistic prayer. St. Paul will say, the night Jesus handed himself over, what was handed on to me, the Eucharist, I hand on to you. Does that make sense? This whole idea of the, it's very Eucharistic. But technically, the word betray doesn't really appear. Um, I think it's amazing. But there is this prophecy from Zechariah uh, that uh, the Messiah will be sold for silver. Well, the other person sold for silver pieces was Joseph by his brothers. And the prophecy is Jesus will be sold for a silver coin. And so Judas does decide to betray him. But Matthew says that Judas had remorse for selling Christ. But, and this is important, I don't think remorse is the same thing as repentance. Uh, remorse he was remorseful about himself, what had happened, but he, he never was repentant to Christ. So just the fact that you feel bad about something is not the same thing as repentance. We're called not just for remorse, we're called to go to Christ for repentance. Uh, does that make sense? And you know Judas ends up committing suicide. Um, doesn't take the money, but, uh, and this is just my little hope. I. I actually hope everybody's in heaven. Um, I hope Judas makes it to heaven. And my one little hope is this, is that um, there's this thing called the law of hospitality in the Old Testament. In the law of hospitality, it works like this. Um, if you show hospitality to those people, then God, who are outside your circle, then God will grant you hospitality as well. You give them life, God will give you life. And the law of hospitality is this, is let's say this table, all of you are in my home. And I, Chris, um, I give Chris some food. Uh, 
the law of hospitality is that if Chris ate at my table, and let's say he steals my dog or commits some crime, I'm dog thief. Um, <laughs> I'm not allowed to pursue him for three days. Then I can pursue him. Does that make sense? Um, so notice how Jesus takes a morsel and puts it in Judas's mouth. In the law of hospitality, Judas is covered for three days. Does that make sense? So if Christ is resurrected in three days, maybe Judas did make it because Christ put it in his mouth. Does that make it? I'm not saying it is or isn't, but you have to think, why does he go out of his way to make sure you eat this? It's the law of hospitality. Does that make sense? So I do hope. Um, but Wednesday in Catholicism is called Spy Wednesday. A Spy Wednesday because it's the day that Judas handed over. And so in the early church, you would fast on Fridays, the day Christ died, and Wednesday, the day Judas betrayed Christ. And during your fast on Wednesday, you would be thinking, in what ways have I tried to profit from Christ? In which ways have I also betrayed Christ? So even like in Medjugorje, Our Lady of Medjugorje, um, the Virgin Mary suggests uh, fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. Why Wednesday? Um, because that's the day Christ was sold out. Um, now, personally, I, I'm very judgmental, but um, that's true. You've heard of the gospel of prosperity. Do you guys know what that is? Anybody not know what the gospel of prosperity is? Okay, so the gospel of prosperity is very popular among evangelicals. And it's this gospel that if you accept Jesus and donate money to my church, God will prosper you. God will give you a truck and a full head of hair and bless your bank account. Um, did you ever read, I'm sure nobody did, the book, The Secret of Positive Thinking. It's total crap. Um, no, really, it is. Um, and it's all about positive thinking, that as long as you think positive, you'll get greater wealth. That's just a derivation of the gospel of prosperity, that somehow if you're religious in some form, God is going to give you greater wealth. It, that's the secret. But that's not what we believe. God so loved us, he doesn't give us silver, he gives Judas silver. Does that mean, uh, he gives us the cross. Um, so the first person to practice a gospel of prosperity is Judas. You're not supposed to get wealthy, you're supposed to actually embrace the cross. So um, Wednesday, ah, how, Asher, supposed to be this reflection, how have I betrayed Christ? The other big thing that happens on Wednesday is Jesus is, is anointed. He goes to the house of Simon the leper um, and, sorry, Simon uh, a Pharisee at, at Bethany. And during the dinner, this woman comes in and anoints Jesus' head and washes her, uh, his, her, his feet with her tears and dries it with her hair. And um, like, this is such a great theme, but first of all, you have to think symbolically. So she's, it's in the Greek, she stands behind Jesus and anoints his head with this aromatic nard, right? This expensive oil. So what does it mean to stand behind Jesus? Oh, good job, yes. So she's a follower of Jesus, but it also says that she's kneeling at his feet. You can't do both. Does that make sense? So don't think literally. If she's kneeling before him, it's adoration. Um, so she anoints him, and she washes his feet with her tears and dries it with her hair. That tears is the washing of the feet. Um, explain that. Priests, before they're ordained, would have their feet washed. It's part of the ordination rite. Jesus is getting his feet washed, which is... Um, and I'll get into this next time. As I said, it's a wedding ceremony and it's an ordination. He's having his feet washed. Um, so that's before his ordination, the crucifixion. Um, but it's her tears. And she dries them with her hair, her honor. But she also anoints him. But uh, it's a wedding for this. Before you're married, 
You also, the wedding ceremony is that you, you're washed and you're anointed. So it's this pre-marriage ceremony. Does that make sense? She's the one doing it. Um, so it's not about his death. It's actually about his wedding slash ordination. But that oil would have been a small fortune. It's everything she had she pours out on Christ. And Judas objects. Um, you know, Judas uh, objects because, you know, that, that could have been used to pay for the poor. Judas doesn't care about the poor. Um, he cares about himself. He, he was always helping himself to the common purse. And then Jesus has that line that is so misinterpreted. When Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you, but not always me. Well, why, um, when he says the poor you'll always have with you, I hate to say it, so many people have interpreted, well, what can you do about poverty? They'll, you know, those types will always, that's not what he meant. The poor you'll always have with you because it's the church who takes care of the poor. Um, does that make it like, um, and you're not supposed to profit from religion. So Jesus is anointed. Now what's uh, also you should know, all of us here has been anointed as well at our baptism. And the foot washing, the foot washing is important because Thursday is the big foot washing. And everybody remembers the Thursday foot washing, but most people forget that Jesus had his own feet washed on Wednesday um, with her tears drying him and kissing them. Um, that, um, and she does it because she is known forgiveness. And um, she expresses the forgiveness in this love for others. Um, and I just think it's funny with anointing. Um, the only heart that was most true at that dinner, that supper, was not the Pharisee leading it, or really any of the other apostles or Judas. The one whose heart was the fullest with love was the woman who knew forgiveness, the uninvited guest. Does that make any sense? Um, so, uh, okay, I've got an hour. But the point being, and I have... Uh, seven more pages of notes. So I'm not going to get to that. What's that? So, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I have seven more pages of notes just on Wednesday, but that's just not going to happen. But um, I'll just get to the point. The point is, in all these parables, Monday through Wednesday is leading to this purification for the uh, wedding feast of Holy Thursday, Friday, and Easter. That those days are these days of purification. So, um, and also, if you're getting ordained a priest, before you, you'd have these days of purification. So the first half of Holy Week is trying to purify our hearts. And the odd part, Christ comes to purify religion. Christ comes to Take away the dead branches in us. So uh, I, I consider this still part of the Monday through Wednesday of, of Lent. Our purpose of Lent is to make sure we're purified so that when we get to the Triduum, which is the really high holy days, is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, uh, that our hearts are truly pure. If you're about to get married, and I'm going to cover this, why not spend a couple days making sure you can really make this commitment? If the high priest is about to be ordained, you take a couple days to make sure I can truly live out these vows. That's what the first days of Holy Week are. So, question, objections? Yeah. Tradition says it's uh, Mary Magdalene. Other people say Mary, uh, Mary and Martha. It's, she's actually unnamed. So I think her name was Kay, personally. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't say prostitute. It just says a public sinner. And so, once again, I just think it's kind of funny. It's like the older son. There's a lot of sins, <laughs> but... History has said that she was a prostitute. I think that says more about the people accusing her. Because <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Other than, why can't you say his divinity was a growing awareness? Because at 12, he already knew he had to be about his father's business and then was obedient. So why couldn't you say it was in a growing awareness of his divinity? The same way it is for us. I mean, I used to have kind of a low Christology. Now my Christology is really gives me a bloody nose. <laughs> so... Yes. Yes, it does. One of the Psalms does say 30 pieces. And Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah says 30 pieces too. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces. So Jesus goes for a better rate. Um, but yeah, yeah. That, that same Psalm, that same Psalm also says they've tore holes in my hands and feet. Dogs surround me. I can feel all my bones. I'm going to get into that next time. Yeah, it's a great psalm. Uh, like, written, it's a prayer written hundreds of years before Christ, but perfect. Then I'm going to get into that next time. But, well, maybe I'll, can I get into it right now? Yeah. Just real quick, because it drives me up a while. When people, because the psalm 22 starts off with, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And you'll hear people say about Jesus at the crucifixion, see, he gave up his faith at the last moment. No! That is not it. That's the title of the psalm. He's literally dying. He doesn't have a lot of breath. And the psalm, the, the title of psalms are the opening line. Does that make sense? So um, the opening song, it's written before Christ, is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's somebody who's being tortured to death. Um... And it starts out with that, but then it's a psalm of trust, not abandonment. That he says, despite the fact that I'm dying, I'm being tortured, and yet I trust that this is victory. That's the amazing part. What looks like defeat is victory. And the last line says, children yet unborn will declare Yahweh saves. What is, what's a word Yahweh saves? How would you translate that into English? Jesus. The last line is Jesus. And so you have this psalm of um, somebody dying, and it, yes, it looks like defeat, but this is what real victory looks like. So anybody who says, see, he lost faith on the cross. No, he's saying it looks like defeat, but it is victory. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And dogs around me, there actually were these wild dogs, because hundreds would be crucified. And dogs, wild dogs would come for the flesh. So it's just a perfect description of the crucifixion. So. There's a wonderful book uh, written by Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov and St. Francis Recommended that Catholics read that. I read it several years ago after being tortured with James Joyce, who's another difficult author. And uh, you know, my grandson's in his own torture right now because he's reading The Brothers Karamazov. But in one of the world's most famous chapters, Brothers Karamazov, Jesus comes back to earth, and the archbishop puts him in jail and says, we're not ready for you yet. You need to stay in jail. Why are you here? You shouldn't have come back. We're not ready for you. And I thought that's a, a really interesting is that we are not ready really for Jesus to come back. So he's talking about um, Dostoevsky's book, sorry, I can't pronounce it, um, Brothers Karamazov, which is true. In, in the book, Jesus comes back and the archbishop puts him in jail. Like, in all honesty, if the joke is, if Jesus came back, we would still crucify him. If Jesus came back, religion, and the, the irony, I think he's right, religion is not ready for Christ. So we would still crucify him. And so, like, I, it's a great reflection for Holy Week that, well, hopefully we'll get ourselves ready. Not all religion would be ready, but even in the book, at least one person is converted. But, yeah. All right, well, we've gone a little over an hour, so um, great. We'll cover Thursday and Friday next week. Sure. Hello, this is Father Lynn McMillan. 
I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.